This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. Welcome to the first episode of Before the Peace. I am Jenna Moreland, and I'm here with my seven-foot sidekick, Trey Lapashinsky. Yeah. (laughs) That song you just heard was written and performed by our first guest, Gary Oker. But before we talk about Gary and all the knowledge and stories he has, we wanted to recognize first that we're recording this podcast on traditional Deniza land. I am so excited for everyone to hear this first interview. You have absolutely no idea this man has done a lot, and he has a lot of stories, and at, I mean, at a couple points, Jenna, and I, I told you this after, you and I were like leaned in. Yeah, we while were. While he was telling stories. Like I'm supposed to be looking at the board and the levels and all this technical stuff. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> we were in Gary's studio and that's where he does his music and his art. So it was very cool to be in the studio with him and just see everything that he's done. Well, not everything, but some of what he's done. And... We're actually hopefully going to have him back, right? Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about his music quite a bit because so throughout this podcast, all the music here is from Gary. He he wrote it. He performed it. Um, and then he obviously gave us the the opportunity to use it for this for this first podcast, which I'm very excited for. He actually, at the middle of our interview, just picked up a guitar and started singing. Well, unfortunately, we have podcast equipment and not music equipment <laughs> uh, to record. So we actually had to to cut out his part where he randomly was singing. Just, it just did not sound good enough. Yeah, the guitar. And even Gary after, yeah, even Gary after said it, it just wasn't working. And he did some drumming as well. And it just didn't work for the audio. So what we had done is during the podcast, you will actually hear one of... Gary's produced songs so when uh Jenna and Gary are kind of talking and and talking about music instead of him picking up the guitar it will be one of his very very lovely produced songs um so I'm so excited for that but just talking about Gary and and all the stories and knowledge he has I just want to give kind of like a resume of what he he's done first of all he's traveled throughout North America and Europe to study and work as a film director and visual artist. He speaks the Denezal language. He has a master's degree from Royal Roads University. And he is the driving ho- force behind uh, the Sequa, which is one of the oldest archaeological sites discovered in BC, which was our main focus with Gary today. We talked a lot about Sequa. Yeah, the history of the piece and the Denezal is more than we can fit into an hour, uh, which is how long our episodes are going to be. Uh, but we touched on Oker's family lineage a bit, and we spoke about the beaver people, um, but most of it was Sequa. I just wanted to make a note to um, the, the vibe in this first episode. And, and moving forward, we want this to be raw. Uh, we're going to mess up. Jenna and I definitely are going to mess up. Uh, we did in this first uh, episode, and, and Gary would correct us, and that's what we want. We want to sit there. We want to listen. We want to learn. This isn't about us. Jenna and myself are, are l- listening and learning with everyone else who's listening to the podcast. We're not the experts here. Uh, I never wanted us to be mistaken as so. So we just want to learn and we just want to listen. So just just a heads up, just a little spoiler alert. Uh, you know, sometimes Gary was, is speaking in the Denizal language. 
Jenna would try to repeat, and she messes up a couple times until yeah. she gets it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, di- I do get it eventually. <laughs> uh, but before we get into the interview with Gary, I just want to take a second to thank everyone who's currently listening right now. Um, but then also our major thank you goes to our sponsor, Troyer Ventures. Without them, this podcast would not be possible. So thank you, Steve at Troyer Ventures and everyone there uh, for sponsoring this. Anyone who's been in Fort St. John for a long period of time, they know Troyer and they know that Troyer has been serving our community and the energy industry since 2000 with tanks and vac trucks. And they're built on principles of hard work, service and community. They're very proud to offer their financial support to make this possible. Now, I know it's coming from me and not Troyer, but he said this to us. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> he is very, very stoked to be a part of this podcast, and uh, he believes it's just as important as as we believe it is. And we're really excited. So um, we're going to stop talking, and we're just going to get right into it. So here is Gary Oker. Welcome, Gary. Hey, John <laughs> Okay, so is, does that mean welcome? Yes, okay. John Ache means how are you? Oh, how are you? Okay. <laughs> and you would say, Ucho Ache. Ucho. Ucho. Ache. Ache. Yeah. Oh, Ucho Ache. I am good. Okay, very cool. <laughs> so I guess the first question that I wanted to put forth is, so you're very, very creative, clearly. And we're looking around at your studio right now. People can't see it, but there's art everywhere and music and it's beautiful. Um, But so the term dreamer, are you, are you, do you come from dreamers? Uh, Not Chine. That's what we call them. Okay. Not Chine. They're the dreamers that uh, um, had history of it. Yes, my grandfather was a dreamer. Uh, we call it Nachine. Um, we sing all their songs. They have the ability to actually travel in their dreams. So I guess the closest description I would say that would be uh, astral travel in dreams. Oh, cool. So it's a whole um, discipline that uh, our ancestors were re- very good at. So they, they can be able to travel in their dream and receive messages or songs. And upon awaken, they would bring it back into physical world. So they had the ability to travel between spiritual dimensions and uh, physical world here. So pretty exciting uh, to know about that, to understand that. And all the philosophies that they have provided us, uh, we still practice it today uh, by dreaming ahead for people. So kind of like a prophecy, right? Yes. Okay. Like like using prophecies uh, to guide daily living and how to live and, uh, have a relationship with the land. And that all comes back all the way from, you know, 12,500 years of Tsekwa. And what we're discovering is that a lot of our traditional stories talks about the connection to that land in that context where a lot of our ancestors uh, told stories about um, living among the giants, the giant animals, only in the tree, that's what we call them. Okay. So the were the dreamers, they were also the original leaders of the separate tribes of the Deneza, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay. So a lot of the communities around here have uh in their family kinships uh dreamers. So um 
when we get together to talk about about that, it's very exciting because we always learn something new from one another and uh, share this knowledge. So. Yeah, that's very cool. So Saqua, uh, which is also known as the Charlie Lake Cave, it's one of the few known archaeological sites in northern British Columbia that date before 11,000 years ago. And one of, uh, one of them even fewer with record human activity, right? So, like, can you tell us a little bit about how Saqua was discovered? Well, uh, our ancestors always knew about it. We we knew about it. They they told they told stories about it, and people used to come to uh, Charlie Lake to go fishing. You know where the um, by the bridge there. Yeah, that was one of the fishing areas. So historically, they they camped all around that lake. So the whole Charlie Lake cave, cave and all around there. There's trails and stories of people camping in that area, and people have found lots of artifacts in and around that area. Okay. So, but was there a slide or something that helped kind of unearth it a little bit, like with some of the artifacts? Well, um, if you look at the history, uh, Simon Fraser University did an analysis on it. There's a whole story on it uh, about how that, you know, I guess the rock that was there fell. Um, but there was a gully that, that formed in, in front of the cave, and that's where they did the archaeological dig. They went down 11 feet or something like that. Oh, okay. 12 feet or something. And so what exactly did they find? Oh, they found all kinds of things, uh, lots of arrowheads, uh, only in the tree, giant animals like the giant uh, ancestors of today's bison. Mm-hmm. We, we call it chuck. That's, so the the bison is that's like an ex- extinct now, right? Yes, that is. And they found like actual actually bones of it, and they can study it and date it, and based on other uh, discoveries, other places that they can actually formulate what type it is, and kind of visualize the size. It's about a third bigger than what it is today. Wow. So that's pretty big. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so they found also two ravens at this, like, r- remains. Um, and they were also buried with an arrowhead, right? Is that, am I saying that right? Well, I mean, they were, actually, they were a, th- a thousand year apart. Oh, okay. So yes. that's one older and yeah. one, oh, wow. And yeah. so they were used a, in a ritual. Well, that's what they... We think. We think it is, okay. and uh, we, we're still doing some studies. But I think they uh, definitely there would be something associated with that because um, we have stories about ravens and and crows as transformatives. They're they're transformative hunters, and uh, our stories go back to that time. Oh, so, can you tell us a story? Well, I mean, it's, it's a long story. Oh. So. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> he's, a, he's a transformative. Yeah, he's a transformer. So, so he turns, like the, uh, one particular story, there's lots of them, but uh, this one particular story was about this uh, uh, raven that came to uh, transform himself into a man and a hunter and came upon a village, and, and this village, uh, this family had... Uh, lots of sisters, so of course he wanted to have uh, a wife. So he he uh, made himself useful by by being around there and helping out. And uh, he would go hunting. And obviously, as soon as he goes out of, out of sight, he'll transform back into raven, fly around and see a game, and then turn back into a man, and then 
kill the animal and then bring it back. So, of course, the, the father was very excited. Hey, there's a, a man that's uh, my future son-in-law. He's a good hunter. So, so that's one of the stories. But it goes a long ways and different things happen. But that's one of the stories that we have where uh, Raven was a transformer hunter in the, in a, in the uh, or to a family. Oh, that's so interesting. So I'm sure there was a link to that, those, uh, those ravens that were found. Yeah, but the fact that they were found like a thousand years apart, but similar ritual is just so interesting. Wow. That's very exciting to know about that. Yeah, we're just uh, finding out more and more about what, what was done. I mean, uh, they, they found all kinds of arrowheads and different uh, tools and different things. Uh, it's known as one of the most uh, undisturbed site. So that's why we advocated on a national level to, to make it into a historical site because mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very important and national historic site. So, um, now we're talking with, uh, Simon Fraser and UNBC to actually create a field school to actually do more digging up on top of the top because most of the artifacts and things found were actually coming from the top. That's what they, they, uh, so there's project. potentially a lot more to be discovered. We know that there is. There is. Okay. So what did they use the cave for? Did they live in it or did they just use it um, as like a campsite to, or as migration? Do we know? Well, uh, let's go back to time. There's a concept called uh, the Barren Strait Theory. I don't know. Everybody is learn, learned about that in school. Oh, gosh, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so if you go back in time, they said that the as soon as the ice, uh, the glacier melted, the indigenous people from, you know, Siberia and Russia and that area came down. Yeah, so, so this was like an ice-free kind of corridor. corridor yeah. yeah, okay. So anyways, that's that was the theory. But, you know, if you talk to our people, the people said, well, we always been here. So we have a, a context around that and say, hey, well, there's not just a one-way street. So, but if you look at the artifact, artifacts found, even uh, at Site C, there are tens of thousands of artifacts found along the river. Um, a lot of the artifacts are found from many, many places. So, for example, um, there was artifacts found in Dakotas, South Dakota. Oh. There was found in the uh, um, Chilcotin area, and they were found over in Alaska. So there was a lot of different uh, obsidians and different artifact pieces found that doesn't exist here. So what does that mean? That means people... We're actually coming and traveling. trading and traveling. So there's a movement of Dene people from all the different directions. So I talked to a lot of the other Dene groups and everyone has a different stories and the areas that they kind of occupied and lived. So in the beaver history around here, we've always had this seasonal rounds that people went around and round to this territory. So that's uh, clear. And then there's other indigenous Dene and that go up north to the Yellow Knife and that type area to the Great Slave. So there's a lot of different movements, uh, even down to Chakotin. There was some um, obsidian found from there. So lots of uh, Dene movement has happened and that demonstrated to us that was always been a trade thing happening. People were trading things, trading goods with one another. 
So one of the future contexts is to develop that as a trade route again. Oh, okay. I was just going to add this to it, and this is something we discussed before we went live here, is you said that the Dene, you know, weren't obviously just in kind of the BC area, but they went all the way down to the U.S. and kind of spread throughout North America. Is that correct? So, yeah, what we're discovering recently is that uh, if you look at the Dene, Beaver, Athabascan language dialect, there is a group in Siberia that were actually their language dialect matches with the Navajos in you know southern states. And uh, if you start to really look at some of the language of the Dene people or uh, Beaver, Athabascan tribal people, a lot of the words are very similar. So, for example, we would say sus, that means bear. Others would say sus, oh. but it all meant the same thing. Sa, sa is the sun. And everybody uh, that I've spoke to different Dene groups, they all say sa or si. Something that represents similar. similar dialect, but at the same time meaning the same thing. So that's very interesting when you look at it from a linguistic point of view, how that is. All the way down in California, as a few years ago, I went down to a language, Dene language uh, conference, and I met with Dene people there. He spoke very similar. You can understand that it's wow. very similar in terms of language. So Northern California and Oregon, they were Dene people. And then all the way back up to the Apaches, the Navajos, uh, to Dene down by Calgary. And then as you go up north, you have different various groups all the way up to Yellowknife, all the way to Alaska. Um, there's many, many different tribes. So the artifacts that they found by Site C, what are they doing with those? What's the plan with the artifacts that they found there? Because there was a lot found during Site C, right? Yes, there are tens of thousands wow. of artifacts found. And when you, when you actually look at it uh, on a map, it's incredible the amount of artifacts. So uh, we put a proposal to Site C and say, well, the, because of the damage that you're actually creating and claiming the land, here and um, in a flooded areas that we, you need to do something in terms of reconciliation to our culture. We just don't want that wiped out and flooded for, like they did last two cult, uh, two dams. Mm-hmm. So now we're saying, no, build a cultural center. Yeah, so you can preserve everything. So we can actually not, not only preserve it, but to tell the story yep. of the people. So now we're working with 13 different communities, all the impacted communities around uh, the Peace River, to start planning and developing a cultural center that will showcase various stories and communities from Ice Age to digital. And I just wanted to go back. Uh, you were talking about uh, Doig, uh, Prophet River in West Boberly, purchasing uh, the land for Saquon in 2012, I believe it was. Um, why did it take so long for the local First Nations to get that, the land? For the historic site. Well, that's all part of the colonialization. <laughs> all the best lands are taken up by, you know, settlers and uh, people that, that had money. And uh, um, with government uh, partnerships, they, they purchased all the different lands. And all along, people that originally owned the land, they said they'd rather have, you know, give it back to the native people because it belongs to the people. So... 
that's what the owners did. And when they were ready to retire and uh, sell their property, they offered it to the communities and the community jumped at it and said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll buy it back. That's awesome. And so the joint purchase, is it hard? Is, is it difficult to manage? Cause like th- there's obviously a lot of people involved in it, right? Well, um, well, there's three bands uh, presently holding it. Yeah. You know, on, but you know, like we have a representative on each from each community sitting as a board. Oh, okay. So we have a, a cultural heritage society that we're running it under, and uh, we make decisions on what's happening. So just recently, we we hired a, a executive director. Yes, I met her. She's very nice. Yeah. So <laughs> we were lucky to find somebody like that that's got passion and energy to uh, to run it and to carry out the the wishes, which is to turn it into um, cultural heritage repository. So it doesn't exist anywhere right now. All the cultural artifacts and for years we've been complaining about this and to government about cultural heritage management and they just, uh, any artifacts found on industrial development pro- projects, they would just put it into a seat into a sea cam behind Fort St. John museum and then store it there. So we said, well, no, we, we, we need a proper cultural cultural protocols and processes in place to to take care of this stuff because we got to match our stories to it so so that's what happened and we are starting to move towards that direction now where we can actually have um a cultural heritage repository for all artifacts found and then we can do the curation with the community um matching stories with them okay so what is your vision for saqua because i i know like you love big ideas and I love the big ideas. So like, what is your vision? Cause you kind of wanted to, to be interactive, right? Like yeah. the museum. Yeah. I mean, the, the goal is to turn it into world-class interpretive center, basically um, people from all over the world. And we already got people coming in from all over the world, interested in being part of developing it into uh, a repository center or, or a place where uh, the history can be taught and, so we had school tours, school, a lot of school kids love coming over there to to that. And then all the visitors, you know, along the Alaska Highway come, coming up and down, we'll be able to have a place to come and see. Uh, virtual reality experiences, that's what we like to see, digital, to bring people back into time, back into Ice Age time. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Yeah, so you can actually... <laughs> Uh, have it and hologram, you know, that'd be awesome too. Like, it'd be cool to see how, like, a life-size version of, like, the bison, the ones that are extinct, like, what did, how big were they really? Like, that would be cool to see yes, something like that. that would be cool. And that's the idea. I mean, back in the day, we, we, we have stories about all these different giant animals. And um, so we definitely want to bring those alive and in consultation with community and do some creative, creative, creative works. And, uh, to bring it up so that people can actually have that amazing experience about how the people saw, you know, what it was like back in the day. Yeah. So in, you were talking about visitors coming. So I know it right now it's kind of by appointment only, right? Uh, yes. To, you got to coordinate Yeah. You got to, you got to just uh, make a call to uh, Alicia and uh, book a time. And uh, we're actually working on doing a lot of renovation going on and, um, cutting out trails, setting up old villages so that uh, 
when people do come and see that, uh, they can certainly see all the different artifacts. Uh, just, yeah, um, a couple of years ago, we have uh, um, over a thousand artifacts returned to us by a local farmer. Wow. Yeah, at, at Kitskatna. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that farmer there, uh, Donaldson, uh, had a 350-acre uh, property, uh, farm, and uh, he collected for years, like, I don't know, since 1948 or something like that. And he just kept collecting them, collecting them, and uh, finally he said, what am I going to do with all this stuff? I got to <laughs> give it back to the people. So he eventually got it down to Simon Fraser when they actually analyzed it and put it into proper archiving system. And it's ready to come back to us. So we're now doing renovation at Sequan so that uh, we can bring that back and showcase it to the, to, to the public. Okay. Wow, that's amazing. That's so cool that he gave it back to you guys. That's Yeah, we like to see all the uh, local farmers and ranchers do that. Yeah. It would be awesome. I mean, we can make them a replica with uh, 3D printing. Oh, that'd be know? cool. Or so, we can give them a pair of moccasins for exchange. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's any farmers listening out there right now, uh, if you have some artifacts, <laughs> you can bring them to Gary. So it, was there any other caves like this in the area? Is there, like, is there any of note that we know of? Any other? Well, far as I know... Um, a few years back, the National Geographic actually did a, 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 a story on artifacts and found in North America. And this is actually was on the map saying it's one of the most significant in North America. Okay. And I think the, there's, uh, as you go up north, uh, Old Crow, I believe, has uh, some really old artifacts, 24,000 years or something, up to 40,000. So we don't know exactly but this is the one that we know about. So why is it so significant? Is it because the, the bones were so preserved or like, because it gives us some insight onto like what the land was like before? Like how, how why is it so significant? All of it. Yeah. I mean, and I think the main thing was that from an, an, an archaeological perspective is that it was the most undisturbed mm. land formation and you can actually see the layers of land, you know, okay. uh, undisturbed. So a lot of times when artifacts are found, it's already in a disturbed area. So it's hard to quantify sometimes what that is. But apparently this, uh, this site, because it was uh, uh, in, in a gully right in, uh, in front of the cave, um, anything that was on top fell down and over the, you know, thousands of years, you can see different layers of uh, strata of land. Um, and it's really clear and very distinct. That's what makes it so interesting. And you have a new dig coming. Am I, is that, are we allowed to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, we have, we have a partnership agreement with uh, Simon Fraser and UNBC to do a community uh, community dig uh, next next year for six weeks. All the uh, students that are involved in the course uh, will come for six weeks and do an archaeological dig, be alive. So that's such a cool opportunity for those kids to come and do that. So one's going to school like going to school for that and then you get to go and do a live date like that's so cool <laughs> well one of the things that they told us that they're, they're changing the whole processes of um uh archaeological uh finds and digs because um 
it's basically it was hijacked by them before mm. where indigenous communities weren't really involved unless you're actually part of the dig. But the context of finding these artifacts, it's really meaningless. You can date it, you can study it, and you can find all kinds of uh, analysis of it, whatever. But if you can't connect it to the story, to the local people, it's just a piece of rock. Mm-hmm. So they're now calling these field study schools where elders will be involved, the local language keepers and all that will be involved in actually curating that whole process. So very good learning because you're bringing in traditional knowledge and languages and history from the eyes and the voices of the people. Wow. So what is being done to pr- protect the site then? Because this is obviously huge significance. So how do we, how do we protect it? Well, I think the main thing that we want, we want is to ensure that the public supports it and, uh, and come and learn about it. Uh, I think a lot of people, even local people, don't even know. I mean, they hear about it. Growing up, everybody goes to the party. <laughs> but it doesn't really, it's just a place, hey, let's go see, check out the cave. But they don't really know the history or the significance of it. So uh, our goal is to uh, inform the public and, and have it available for the experiences. So that's why, we, you know, we've got to book time and get some tours if there's a big group of people coming in and then also making it friendly for people to come there. Like, you know, having outhouses, uh, access to, you know, toilet and all kinds of things and make sure the trails are done properly so that safety, you know, cause you got to, you got to walk through some bush area. Yeah. So me and my daughters walked down and we did the little on, uh, truth and reconciliation day we did the little walk down um, that you guys had and it had like the little t-shirts there that had the translation um of beaver and it was really cool (laughs) to go and like read that to them because then they were like learning as they went and just going down and just learning all these different words in a different language was kind of kept them engaged uh but they thought the cake was really cool (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they they got to go in it, which they were really excited about that. So I got a text message from Jim saying that I'm not going to fit there. <laughs> I really, really want to go. I wasn't able to that day. She's, she sends me a picture with her kids, like all crouched down. You're, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we we just love um, setting it up and opening it up for kids uh, because that's that's where the learning occurs, right? Yeah, and they're all fascinated. They have, they have no. Uh, preconceived ideas about anything. It's just like, oh, wow, there's a cave and there's artifacts. And yeah, so then we add stories and songs to it. Yeah. It just makes it so much more um, alive. So they loved the teepee too. The teepee that you guys had set up there. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> they were running around in it, just like playing. And yeah, it's really beautiful. Uh, so I was just wondering if there was a prophecy that you know of from your ancestors that you'd be willing to share with us? Well, I mean, there's lots of prophecies. It depends. You can have the prophecy of what happened even with the Site C. There's prophecies of the, um, in early 16, 1700s, there's prophecies of the dreamers. They, you know, they can foresee the future and they, they predicted what's going to happen. They're going to, they predicted the, the, the land uh, being taken over by non-Indigenous peoples. Uh, they protected that 
the there's going to be so much uh, development going on that um, so much mat sticks. It's like match matchsticks matches. You know the mm-hmm. the sticks that you won't know if it's day or night. Oh, and they also protected the big snakes that will be in the ground. They're protecting the pipelines. Oh, and they also protected the 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 caging of animals. The animals were going to die out. And we're seeing those effects right now because, like, there's so many people coming in and shooting animals and, you know, uh, even government policy, like, they have this stupid policy about killing the cow and the calf to, to uh, you know, kill off the, the wolves. That doesn't make sense. You know, like, those kind of things, uh, government policies about wildlife management, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. that was all kind of prophesized in, in that, hey, this is what's going to happen if we continue a certain way of being, uh, cutting down all the trees and multiple, multiple farms being opened up and um, pipelines and oil and gas and all that industrial development. So the impacts of it today, we're, we're really starting to see what's happening in that uh, a lot of areas. People are coming in from down south and Alberta into our area to go hunting. And they're, they're just shooting. Like a lot of them are, are actually poaching. So we're seeing a lot of that effect. So so elders are concerned that uh, there will be no, no moose left. So that, you know, covers our treaty, our treaty right to hunt and fish. So definitely prophecies were told about that but at the same time, there's great prophecies about um, looking for your song, uh, hanging on to your dreamer songs and hanging on to your language. Uh, so they say, you know, so that you can live a good life. Uh, if you look for your songs and you find your purpose, uh, you, you got to serve the people, got to help the people. And so those are kind of things that we like uh, sharing, you know, like what we can do to work with one another, to be a collaborative, good neighbor. To be a good neighbor, that means, you know, look, let's beat the racism. Let's let's beat the, uh, and through that process, it's all about education and learning. So that's mm-hmm. why I'd say Kwa and the cultural history of the tens of thousands of years of our ancestors being around here is so important because we want to be able to expand that knowledge to how to best live in a way that first of all there's going to be some something to look forward to and at the same time uh, to be a good neighbor with one another i like the finding your song i i like that i like the the significance of it and just like just finding your purpose in life and giving is better than receiving kind of thing but uh yeah that's really interesting um all right so so the future plans for the site, what are we looking at for timeline-wise for Sequa? Because obviously there needs some funding needs to come in, right? And then and then what? So what what's what's gonna be the process? Like is this gonna take like a 10-year process to get like the actual interactive museum going? Like what do you think it's gonna be? Uh I think we're we're on our way very, very well right now okay we we had some success in getting some funding in different areas so we're moving we're it's happening like uh, for example the house is being renovated right now um there's some really cool things already taking place and 
every month uh, we see progress happening. So by, you know, by next year, I think that we're going to have pretty cool things. Uh, we're actually got a big dome coming. Oh. Yeah, for that, to, for, uh, to house all the artifacts and uh, have a place where the archaeological dig will occur. So, so that's going to be a real cool infrastructure. Yeah. So we're really looking at infrastructure, make sure that uh, everything is done cor- according to code and uh, safety you know, of people coming in. Yeah. And like even railings that got to go down to the cave so that uh, people that do walk, because right now you got to kind of hang on to a tree and yeah. <laughs> kind of make your way down. It's kind of part of the fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, we still got to have some railings in there for yeah. people that don't, they don't fall. And, yeah. you know, we assert, that's the last thing we want to get sued for. Yeah. Um, so anyways, the, I think the, it's in progress right now. And as you come there, and you're going to find changes happening. Yeah. So like teachers can book to go and see Saqua, right? Like Absolutely. they can bring their their classes there and like pretty much anybody can go. You just have to book ahead of time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We like we definitely definitely uh want it open enough for the public and to have the a great experience to come there. Like you said, you know, with your daughter you came. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh certainly if you have uh um, schools want to book a timeout to come and check it out. That's uh, just book the uh, contact or executive director. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I would like you to tell me a little bit about your music, if that's okay. <laughs> my favorite. Can I play a song for you? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes.
rejoice cool way to kind of bring it into the next generation. I think music is such a good way to do that. Yeah, I've, I've always been in, involved in uh, music. I was uh, given a drum when I was like four years old. My grandpa made me a drum and every once in a while I get an elbow to my ribs because I was offbeat. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and then I would, okay, pay attention, pay attention. So so I learned how to drum by just that. So, and now I'm uh, one of the song keepers and do a lot of ceremonies and things like that, which is so amazing and loving it. So what does a song keeper mean? Um, song keeper meaning that you have paid your dues to take care of the songs. Oh. So I spent many, many years, 30 some years of apprenticing after Tommy Atachi, And now I'm apprenticing under Sammy Aku. Um, and they're the master keepers of songs. They know history, who sings them, stories of them. And, uh, so I've been, been learning and still learning how to play those songs and learn them. While we're on the topic of music, can you tell me a little bit about what drum songs are used for? The songs come to, we are drummers for tea dances. Oh. So tea dances, when everybody gets together and have a feast and, drink tea and coffee and, and dance around a fire. And we sing all these beautiful songs that goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, today, uh, we do a lot of opening ceremonies for different events. It's, a, it's really like a blessings of things, like songs ahead of time, I call it. And, and when we do these things and open it up, it's, it, it holds a, a spiritual space for people to enter this space or this uh, ceremony or opening up an event and hold a space in peace and and good spirits. So that's really what it is. Uh, uh, we have uh, dreamer songs uh, that we play a, a lot at, uh, and at the tea dances. And, and it's just a, a way of connecting to the spiritual context of life. That only rata, everything is alive. Can I just ask how Treaty 8 was formed? Well, the, it's uh, Treaty 8 was part of the treaty, the original treaties was signed in the early uh, 1899 at Lesser Slave Lake. So then when the Klondikers were going through here, going to Yukon, the uh, the 500 of our ancestor warriors stopped them at the peace banks and say, no more, you're not coming through here. You're disrupting our uh, the land and leaving garbage and just being totally disrespectful. 
So therefore, you cannot come through here no longer. So then they sent a messenger back to the commissioner back in legislative lake when the original Treaty 8 was signed. So they sent a commissioner. So by the time the commissioner came back, all our ancestors moved back to their hunting territory. So the following year, uh, 1900s, uh, May 26, they came back, and that's when treaty was signed with the local beaver tribe. Okay. So, and that's eight different tribes. <laughs> Sorry, can you explain who, like, all, Treaty 8 all is? Well, there's many different groups that okay. are part of signing a uh, treaty with the federal government at different time periods. But okay. the original one was the Fort St. John Indian Band, comprised of Doigura First Nation and Blueberry First Nation. Okay. So... I have one more question for you, and we're going to be asking every guest this, uh, but what does reconciliation mean to you? Well, I think right now what you're doing is reconciliation. It's uh, finding, um, talking to us, talking to the people, and uh, sharing the, the stories of the people and the voices of the people is part of recognition, honoring the people that are here, the original inhabitants, um, creating partnerships, working with each other in the business uh, um, opening up and being inclusive mm-hmm. to things. And, uh, and in and around Fort St. John area, we have good relationship. We're good neighbors for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are reaching out to us just like you are and say, hey, you know, we would like to be part of a po- um, po- podcast here. Um, that's recon- reconciling our differences and to share the goodness of being a human with one another. Yes, I agree. And thank you so much for doing this podcast. We really appreciate it. And we are going to have you on again, I'm sure, because there's so many topics we could hit on, but we definitely wanted to focus on Saquoff in this one. And uh, we just want to let everybody know to, you can head to Saquoff's website, right? To, and get some information on there on how to book an appointment and go and see uh, the historical site. Uh, but thank you so much for doing this, and we look forward to having you again. Ucho, ucho asanala, ucho asanala, ucho asanala, asanala, asanala. You did me good. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> thank you, Gary. <laughs> okay, bye bye. That was an exciting first episode, and I hope everybody listening enjoyed it. Make sure you guys subscribe to Before the Peace using your favorite podcast app or at www.energeticcity.ca slash podcasts. If you have a guest or program idea, make sure you email beforethepeace at moosefm.ca. And one thing I just wanted to clear up before we uh, are done here is if anybody wants to book in to see Saqua to go to the Charlie Lake Cave, they can call Alyssa, who is the executive director, and her phone number is 250-224-7906, or you can email her at saquaheritage at gmail.com, which is spelled T-S-E-K-W-A heritage at gmail.com. And we just wanted to thank everyone again who listened and keep tuning in because we have some pretty special guests lined up. Definitely this podcast is going to grow. It's going to get better and better. And I would just like to say... Hey, Jenna, bye for now. Bye, Trey. 
Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.